Bible literacy matters because if we say, I just love Jesus and that's all I need, but we don't love the scriptures, then we are loving someone who we don't really know because the scriptures are where he's revealed to us. And so anytime we come to the scriptures, we should be looking to ask, what am I learning about Christ? And what am I learning about the Godhead when, when I read? Because it's there that we find the knowledge of him. And so anyone who has basic literacy is able to take in the scriptures in a way that is going to be transformative. And so my hope is always uh, among those who would say, well, I don't think that I need to spend a lot of time in, 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 in the Bible. Like I can read it or I can do devotionals and those kinds of things. It's not that those things aren't beneficial. It's just that the building blocks of how we understand the Bible are when we're spending time in it, line upon line and reading entire books from beginning to end in the way that they were written to be read so that we can get a broad understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ and who this God is that we say that we worship. I mean, the clearest way that I can say it is that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And when we spend time in the scriptures, we are having our minds opened up that our love might be expanded for this Jesus to whom we profess our love. We are continuing to learn how to be better Bible readers and learn how that we can understand the truths of Scripture. And as this video has reminded us to also know Jesus more so that we can love Him and serve Him more. And I like how she said that uh, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And what often happens when we come to the Bible is that uh, we do want to kind of ignore, skip over the things that aren't easy to understand or don't point us directly to Jesus or things that we're confused about. And so today and next Sunday as well, we are going to look at some parts of the Bible that often do get ignored or overlooked because they're controversial or because they're hard to understand. But just because they're controversial or hard to understand doesn't mean that we ignore them or overlook them. They are part of the Bible and God has given them to us for a reason. So this morning we are going to do that. Now the great thing about the scripture is that what's most important about God who loves us, about Jesus who died for us, who was buried and who rose again to life, who offers to us eternal life if we believe and is coming back for us and the truth about the heaven that we'll spend eternity with him, these things are easy to understand and a child can understand them and they're clear in the scripture and we can understand it, we can believe it and we can proclaim it to others so that they can believe. But that's not all that's in scripture. Everything else that's in scripture is there for a reason too and for a purpose. And we need to know it as well because it helps us to understand the simple truths and the important truths when we understand all of the Bible. And when it comes to the Bible, one reason why it's hard to understand is because it's written in a different culture than our own. If we could have King David here this morning, we already read something about him dancing before the Lord and making a fool of himself. I mean, we could maybe tease him about that. I don't know. But if he was standing here today, could you explain to him our 21st American culture? I mean, how would you explain to him our technology? How would you explain cars and cell phones and computers? How, how would David understand that? I mean, how would David be able to explain to us his life? 
Uh, we wouldn't understand what he was wearing. He'd be wearing something that looked odd to us. He'd be talking about food that we've never tasted. He'd be talking about games he played as a child we've never heard of. He'd be talking about customs that would be bizarre to us. It would really be like we were from two different planets. We would be aliens to each other because our cultures are so different. Yet the Bible is written in that culture of David and of others who lived thousands of years ago in what we call today the Middle East. So if the cultures are so different, how can we fully understand the Bible if we don't understand that culture? And if we're trying to understand and interpret and obey scriptures in our culture when they were written to a different one. I'll give you a silly example, but this is in the Bible. Now think about when you last bought some property. Maybe you bought a house, bought a car. Uh, What did did you bring when you actually got the property? Did you bring a sandal or did you bring a pen to sign a document? Uh, We've been at Hardy Ford before. They did not bring any sandals out when it was time to sign the papers. There was a pen. When we got our house and signed a mortgage, it was a pen. And several pens they had, in fact. And we had to sign several times. But there were no sandals involved. Yet if you read Ruth 4, verse 8, it says, So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, Buy back the property yourself. They're buying property. They're swapping sandals. What's that about? It's a culture that's different than ours. Fortunately, the writer of the book of Ruth explains it. Because even in the day he wrote it, years after the events that happened in the book, He had to explain it to his readers. And so he says, At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed a sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. Ruth 4.7 I bet that's never been a memory verse anywhere. <laughs> Ruth 4, 7, okay? I never learned that in Awana. It's not going to be in the back of your bulletin. But it is a verse in the Bible. And what is it doing? It is explaining Ruth 4, 8. Why did he give him a sandal? This is the reason why. That's how they legally bound a contract. It sounds foreign to us. It sounds alien to us. Yet it is the culture of the Bible. Without that Verse here, Ruth 4, 7, we wouldn't understand what they were doing. Here's an example from the Bible where the Bible itself explains to us the ancient culture. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we just don't know the culture of the Bible. That's one of the problems we have. I want you to look at these different things from culture. How in the ancient civilizations, how the Lord of the land or the country would make contracts with his servants and his vassals and how people would mourn and how people would get married and how people viewed in Jesus' day tax collectors and Samaritans. And we just looked at one, how they did in ancient Israel, bound contracts. When you think about all those things, those things are cultural. Let's talk about how... We understand the story of the Good Samaritan. If you don't know what a Samaritan is, you don't understand the full part of the story. 
You can understand it on the surface. It's a story about how you help people, about how you help someone when they're in need. You don't have to know who a Samaritan is to know that of the story. But when you realize how much the Jews hated Samaritans, when you realize how they would in fact not even travel through Samaria, that's how much hatred they had for them, for the Samaritan to be the hero of the story turns the story completely upside down from what the Jews who were hearing it were expecting to hear. As I've shared that story many times, instead of Samaritan, put Islamic terrorist in the story, and that gives the impact of what they heard. It wasn't a Baptist preacher who helped the man. It wasn't a Catholic priest who helped the man. It was an Islamic terrorist from ISIS who helped the man. You see how the story has a different twist to it? When you know what a Samaritan is? The same with the tax collectors. What's the big deal with eating with a tax collector? Ed Taylor, who's a member of our church, is a tax collector. Nothing wrong with eating lunch with him, is there? Until you understand how the Jews looked at tax collectors as traitors, as they looked at them as sinful and cheaters and thieves. Until you understand how they looked at them, you don't understand why they were so upset that Jesus was eating with them. Now, fortunately, you have had a, heard enough sermons from enough pastors and you have had enough Sunday school classes from enough Sunday school teachers. You've read devotionals. You've read study Bibles. You understand some of this culture. And that's the first way that we can understand the culture is to look at what the Bible says, but also to look at resources. And those are the two ways that we overcome this cultural divide. As I said in Ruth, in other places, the Bible explains the culture. Here's another example. In Mark chapter 7, the background of this is that the disciples were eating without washing their hands. When I was a child, I loved this story because, you know, when I was a child, mom said, wash your hands before you eat. Well, the disciples didn't. Why do I have to do it? Right? So, again, in my culture, I was thinking this story was about washing your hands, coming home after playing, and now mom's telling you to wash your hands, and I don't want to do it, and the disciples didn't want to do it, and Jesus didn't make them do it, so mom doesn't have to make me do it. But Mark gives us the explanation. It wasn't just washing hands that are dirty. Mark explains, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. Again, not a memory verse that we often <laughs> give to each other. Because it's a parenthesis in the story. It's an explanation in the story. Mark's explaining to his readers and to us why it was a big deal that the Pharisees saw the disciples not washing their hands. It wasn't about dirty hands. It was about rules, ceremonies, customs that the Pharisees had created, had made in addition to the law of God. And that was the whole point. The story doesn't make sense if you don't have that piece of it. Jesus goes on to condemn the Pharisees because he said that they were people who worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts 
were far from God. And he said they had made these rules and obeyed them, these rules of men, but had ignored and disobeyed the commands of God. The story doesn't make complete sense until you know the custom and the culture in Jesus' day. Fortunately, Mark explains it to us. Fortunately, the writer of Ruth explains it to us. But as you know, when you read the Bible, it's not one verse and then another verse telling you the customs. It's not a passage of Scripture and then another paragraph that explains the culture. So most of the time when we're reading, we don't have an explanation from the Word of God. So that's why I do encourage you to understand the Bible better is to rely on all the hard work that scholars have done for years and decades studying the culture of Jesus' day and the Old Testament days. I encourage you to have at least one study Bible in your house, in your library, uh, on your phone. And you can, do it, you can have it on your phone any place. Because when you look at this Bible here on the screen, it, in fact, it's from the Gospel of Luke. It has an explanation, even a picture of what the temple in Jesus' day would have looked like. And it gives notes to help you understand what's happening in this passage in Luke. And so they've done all the hard work, and study Bibles are good at condensing it and putting it in an easy-to-understand way that you can understand who the Samaritans are and who the tax collectors are, and you can understand about ancient treaties and about sandals and about everything else Because it's right there in the notes. So I encourage you to do that. It does help you understand and read the Bible better if you know the culture that it was written to. But I would also say this. Sometimes you can get carried away with all the pictures and all the notes. And sometimes I find myself skipping to the pictures and the notes before I even read uh, the passage of Scripture. So I encourage both. I encourage you to have a Bible that doesn't have anything in it but the words of God. There's no notes, there's no pictures, it's just the Word of God. Read it. Sometimes God wants to speak to you just through those words. See, that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It's not just ancient words in a culture thousands of years ago. It's alive today because it's the Word of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand it even if we don't know a culture. So God can speak and the Holy Spirit can teach without any maps, without any pictures, without any notes, because it's a living Word of God. But we also shouldn't be foolish and dismiss all the help that we have in something like a study Bible. So have both. Have a Bible that has nothing in it and read it. Have a Bible that has notes, especially when you get stuck, get stumped. A story doesn't make sense. A verse doesn't make sense. Go to that study Bible and it will help you and you will be a better Bible reader. So the one problem we have is we don't know the culture from thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away. The other problem we have is that every time we read the Bible, we are looking at it from the eyes of our culture. I would say really it's impossible for us not to. If you want to think of it in a visual way, we have these glasses that are 21st American culture 
that are a lens through which we see every part of the Bible. We can't help it. This is the culture in which we grew up. We are Americans. We can't help it. That's part of being human, is to live in a culture and to understand everything in light of that culture. So what we want to do is try to make the lenses of those glasses as uncluttered as they can be so that we can see the Scripture for what God really wants to tell us versus what our culture tells us that the Bible says. I'm just going to jump right into it and read a verse for you and show you what I'm talking about. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says this, A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. I want you to look at something. I want you to go back 60 years ago to the 1950s here in America. Ladies, these were the pictures that were shown in magazines that were the epitome of what an American middle-class woman would do. Look at how they dress with skirts and dresses and at the same time vacuum and bake and clean dishes and do the washing with baby in hand as well. And as Wilson pointed out in the first service, they're all smiling. So they enjoyed it, apparently. <laughs> I tell you, just the clothing is hard for me to understand. Anytime I've cleaned the house, you know, it's in dirty shorts or sweatpants and t-shirt. I mean, I... You get dirty and sweaty. I can't imagine wearing my suit and cleaning the house. So even that part's hard for me to imagine. But wasn't this the, the cultural icon of that time? I mean, it was on Leave it to Beaver, and it was actually lived in homes. I mean, nowadays we almost think like it was just a TV show or it was just an advertisement in a magazine. But this is what was expected, and this is how many women lived their lives. So as you think about that culture and you read that verse... Can't you see how people then thought the verse was obvious? This is what women are supposed to do. Do the washing with baby in hand. Why would they want to be a pastor? There's no reason for that. It's obvious what Paul's saying. He's saying there shouldn't be any women pastors. Now think about our culture. We have a Speaker of the House of Representatives who is a woman. We have CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who are women. We have women in combat in the military. We have women construction workers. In fact, we have women doctors and astronauts and uh, teachers and uh, firefighters and uh, police officers. Every single position and job that a man has, there's women doing the same job. So now you read that verse. Do you think our culture now sees the verse differently? Now the question is, if a woman can do every single thing a man can do everywhere else, why can't she be a pastor in a church? It seems obvious Paul wasn't talking about us. He was talking to those Ephesians, but not to us. My point is to show you how our culture affects how we read the Bible. And so I want to explain, because of that, some things we have to watch out for and things that we can do to help us not 
only read the Bible in light of our culture. The one thing we don't do is change the Scripture to conform to our culture. And I believe that it has, is what has happened here recently in the 21st century. I show you these slides. These are Christians who are apologizing, who are celebrating gay marriage, apologizing for preaching against homosexuality. In fact, this week I read Christian authors. One condemned Franklin Graham for condemning homosexuality because this Christian author said the Bible doesn't condemn it. Why should Franklin Graham condemn it? Another author said that Naomi and Ruth were a gay couple. David and Jonathan were a gay couple. Said that Jesus was an advocate for gay marriage. I've never read the Bible and found that. I don't know if you have. So I think on this issue, there are many Christians who have allowed the culture to change the Scripture. I'm not judging or condemning anyone this morning. Those who proclaim to be gay, they are to be treated with love and respect, not with hatred or derision. But at the same time, we teach what the Scripture says. So we should never change the truth of Scripture because our culture changes. In fact, the opposite should happen. What should happen is that the culture changes because of what the Bible says. That's what should happen, and that does happen, especially when the truth of the gospel and the word of God comes to places that are uh, very far from the truth. As missionaries have gone to cultures where there has been human sacrifice, or there's been polygamy, or there has been idolatry, practices that even our Western world would say, even if someone wasn't a Christian would say, well, that's ridiculous, yet there was a culture doing it. But when the truth of Scripture came, those things went away. The idolatry ceased. The human sacrifice was over. Polygamy was gone. Because that culture heard the truth of the Scripture and followed it and obeyed. So we cannot simply go to our Bible, listen to our culture, and say these verses in the Scripture should be interpreted and applied based on what our culture says. It must be the other way around. But the other thing we shouldn't do is go to the Bible and look for all the verses we think are cultural and just say, well, we don't have to obey those. That was for Paul. That was for David. That was for Abraham. That's not for us. Do you see the slippery slope that can happen there? If you start reading the Bible and this verse is cultural, this one's cultural, that one's cultural, that one's cultural. I don't have to obey those. Well, who decides whether it's cultural or not? That has been what has happened in this debate. The verses in the Bible that do condemn homosexuality are said to be cultural for an ancient culture, for Paul's culture, but not for 21st century culture. We shouldn't look at any verse and say that it's cultural and can be ignored or disobeyed. 
I'm going to give you some examples from the Bible to show you how we do obey them, even though maybe not in the same cultural way that Christians in Paul's day did. Paul commands these things. He commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss, to lift up hands in prayer. Jesus commands us to wash each other's feet. Paul commands women not to wear jewelry or braided hair in church. Paul commands women to wear a head covering in worship and for men not to cover their heads and to have short hair in worship. So how many of you disobeyed those commands this morning? All right? No one greeted me with a holy kiss. You disobeyed that one? When I was praying, did you have your hands up in the air? No one washed my feet this morning. I didn't see anybody else washing feet when you came to church today. Ladies, how many of you have rings on, earrings, bracelets? All right, you disobeyed that one. I don't see any woman wearing a head covering. So what are we supposed to do? Some people, again, will go to these verses, and they'll say, well, holy kiss, cross that one out. That's a cultural command. Foot washing, cross it out, cross it out. We don't have to obey these. That's how they deal with it. When we come to these verses, and it's a matter of obeying them or disobeying them. No one wants to say, we're just going to disobey them. So what people say is they're cultural. Paul's church has had to observe these, but we don't because we're in the 21st century. Let's just get rid of them. Ignore them. But as I said, that's a slippery slope. What other verses are you going to say are cultural? And get rid of them. If we're being honest here, someone could basically say, well, the whole Bible's cultural. We could just toss it out. It's, a, it's old. Let's create something new. So what do we do with these verses? We obey them, but we obey them in 21st American cultural style, not 1st century Jewish style. So what do we do? With a holy kiss, we welcome each other. We greet each other. I mean, today if I kissed you when you came into church, you'd leave. <laughs> the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to welcome you warmly and say, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're part of the family. How do we do that? With a, with a handshake. And what's even becoming more appropriate is a hug. That's done appropriately, because even those can be done inappropriately. So an appropriate hug, a, a firm handshake, a, a glad to see you. I mean, a, that's how we welcome each other. So we obey it. Paul wants the church, when it assembles, to be a welcoming place. So we don't ignore the command, we obey the command in our cultural appropriate way. The same with lifting hands in prayer. Paul tells men to raise hands in prayer. But the Bible is filled with other postures when it comes to prayer. And Paul's point was that people should be praying, especially the men in the church. So we pray whether standing, sitting, kneeling, bowing, raising hands. We obey Paul's command to pray. That was the essence of his command. The way that's appropriate for our culture is how we do it. You know, even among Christian American culture, postures of prayer are different. In Catholic churches, you come to church, there is a kneeling rail in the pew in front of you, or there's cushions that you kneel on. They kneel when they pray. Some traditions, you can't be opening your mouth praying unless you do have your hands up. We come to the altar and we bow, we sit, we bow our heads. The physical way we do it's not so important as the fact that we are obeying 
the command and praying. Foot washing. In Jesus' day, it was necessary. People wore sandals, not just passing them around when they were signing contracts. And when they would wear them and they would walk on dusty roads, you would come to someone's house with dirty, smelly feet. Now remember also when they ate, they did not sit at chairs that set them up at a table. They often reclined at a table. So more, uh, think of almost uh, laying down or sitting on the floor and having the table at that height. So now really think about how nasty it is to sit next to someone with dirty, smelly feet when you're eating this far from their feet. So you can see why when you went to someone's house, there was a servant who would wash your feet. If it wasn't a wealthy home and there were no servants, the host would wash your feet. So that when you ate together, it was enjoyable. Do we need foot washers when we come to homes and worship now? No, we don't need that. We have socks and shoes. We're driving in cars. So we don't obey the command by literally washing each other's feet. We obey the command by humbling ourselves and being a servant because that was typically who did the foot washing, a servant. And that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples, that even though he was Lord and Master, He was their servant because he was about to give his life as a sacrifice for their sin. What about jewelry and braided hair? This is an easy one to understand if you think about this. The Oscars. Now, ladies, does anyone care what the men wear to the Oscars? (laughs) I mean, they never ask the man, "Who, who made your tuxedo? I mean, all the men basically wear the same thing. It's a black tuxedo. Yet the reporters and the nation and Hollywood is all concerned about what the ladies wear. Who made your gown? And on Monday morning, there's more talk about what the ladies wore than about who won the awards. So when the the Hollywood actresses come to the Oscars, they want people to focus on them. That's why they're wearing what they're wearing. The jewelry and the gowns and the hairstyles. And so sometimes they want to be uh, provocative, and so they're wearing something that people are shocked, and sometimes they want to be elegant and graceful, so they wear something that will show that, but they want people to notice. That's why they wear them, and people do notice, and that's why they talk about them. And Paul says, when you come to church, it should not be the Oscars. When you come to worship, we should, at our conversation after worship on Sunday, be talking about, wow, did you see her dress? That was really awesome. Or did you see that gold necklace she was wearing? I could see it shining all the way across the sanctuary. And wow, look at her hairdo. She must have, I wonder who her hairstylist is. She must have spent lots of money on that. I got to go find out who that is. You're not supposed to be talking about that. And so Paul says, worship, we should come dressed so that we can focus on God. He wasn't saying you never wear jewelry, you never wear your hair in a style that's fashionable. When you come to worship, it should be about God and focused on Him. And that's how we obey that command. When it comes to the head covering, it's even more confusing when you read 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. But I will say this, it seems two things were obvious. The Corinthians were bringing into their worship service practices from pagan worship services. The Roman men, when they would worship before the idols, 
they would cover their head. And it seemed to some Corinthians who used to be pagans and worshipped the Roman gods in that way were doing that way in their worship service. And it seems as though some of the women who would, in pagan worship, they would actually cut their hair and they would offer it in devotion to a pagan god were doing the same thing in the Christian church in worship. And Paul said, don't do it. Don't bring pagan practices into Christian worship. Also, because they were doing that, they were also blurring the lines of distinction between men and women. And Paul says, don't do that. So you see, we still obey this command. We don't bring pagan practices into our worship. And we do keep the distinction between men and women in our hair and our dress. So we obey it. Again, we're not getting rid of it. So I want you to notice, especially with these commands, they all have to do with our body, literally, don't they? It has to do what we do with our hands, with our lips, with our feet, with our hair, with our clothes. So it's no surprise to me that these commands have to do with those things because those things, what we do physically with our hands to bring meaning and what we wear are super cultural. And they change even in culture as time goes by. Here in our American culture, we don't dress the same way we did 20 years ago. We don't do things with our body when we're giving meaning in the same way we do. Don't hand gestures and hand signs change over time? These things change in our own culture over time. So I can see why they've changed in an American culture thousands of years removed from Paul's culture. So again, we obey the commands, but we obey them in a way that's culturally, cultural, acceptably in our culture. The last things. Be careful when you do read the Bible that you're not interpreting it based on American 21st century culture. I think it helps to realize we have that bias and we can be humble and we can pray as we try to understand it. Let me go back to that issue of women pastors. I could this morning... I don't have the time, nor am I going to do it. I could make an argument for women pastors using Scripture, using the culture of Paul's day, using our culture. I could make an argument the opposite, that there shouldn't be women pastors using the Scripture, using culture, using the exact same tools, but coming to a different conclusion. So I do see this question is different than the one about homosexuality where the Bible never puts that in a positive light, never condones it. So this topic, there are Christians who love the Bible, who love the Lord, who go to the Scripture for answers, who obey the Scripture, who live their life based on the Scripture, who come to different conclusions. Here are the two conclusions, the complementarian view that teaches that men and women are equal, and every, every Christian in America believes that, that men and women are equal, created in the image of God, equal before God in salvation, gifted by God for God's service. But the complementarian view says that also 
there are defined roles for men and women from God and the Scripture for church and for home life. And the other is the egalitarian view, which says there's no limitation, there's no difference between men and women when it comes to the home or to the church. I've given you the the title of the statements. I've given you in your sermon summary the actual website address that you can go to and read the full statement. Our American culture, Christian culture, has been debating this for over 50 years. And as you can see, these two statements were in the late 80s when it really came to a head in evangelical Christianity. If you ask me what my view is, my view is complementarian. As I read the scripture, I do think there are differences in men and women's roles in the home and in the church. But I also realize that we are in association of Baptist churches that have women pastors. We're in a state convention of Virginia Baptists that have women pastors. And I understand that those people in those churches who have them do so because they've read the scripture and they've interpreted verses. And they do so differently than me. So that's where humility and prayer come in, especially when it comes to an issue like this, because sometimes we can be so dogmatic about something, and maybe we have forgotten that being dogmatic about it, we have been looking at verses with our cultural lenses, because we cannot get away from that. We should be humble and realize we do that every time we come to the Scripture. So we pray, asking for humility, asking for guidance. But at some point, you have to come to a conclusion. And when you come to that conclusion, if it's different from someone else, you still can fellowship, you still are brothers and sisters in Christ, you still can love and serve together for God's kingdom. But sometimes we do have to agree to disagree. I know some people hate doing that. (laughs) Because some... If you think about it, both people can't be right on every issue when you agree to disagree. Especially if your conclusion is the opposite. Opposites can't both be right. But that doesn't mean that that's not what has to happen sometimes. And so, when it comes to our culture, and the culture of the Bible, we are better Bible readers when we know the culture of the Bible, and also when we realize the limitations we have reading, interpreting, and obeying the Bible in the culture that we live. If you understand those two, you will be a better Bible reader. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that your word and the most important truths are simple and on the surface. But Lord, you have given us so much more. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble people and that you would help us to be people in prayer so that we can understand your scripture and that we can live it out in our lives. I'm thankful, Lord, that it's a living word, that you do listen to our prayers. And Holy Spirit, you do lead us and you do guide us. And so Lord, I pray that we would would rely on you, Holy Spirit, not on ourselves, not on our biases, not on our culture, 
but on you when we interpret the Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truths in your Word, especially when they're difficult to understand. Most of all, Lord, I pray that when we come to your Word, we're ready to read it, and not just to read it or to interpret it or to win an argument, but to obey it. And Lord, I pray that would be the heart that we have every time we open your Word. I pray now, Lord that we would respond to what you have spoken to our heart. And I pray, God, that we would be obedient in this moment. And I pray, Jesus, in your name, amen. Stand with me, please. We're going to sing. Our time of singing is also a time of responding to what God has spoken to our hearts. So I'll be here to pray with you if you have any need or anything you want me to pray for you about, any commitments you want to make sure before the Lord. Let's sing, let's respond to the Lord this morning.